Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, uh, regardless of where you live in the world. And it is hard to believe that we are uh, getting to the very um, end of October. I don't know where this month has gone, but it has really, really moved quick. But then again, I've said that um, on many other occasions uh, when I've been uh, podcasting live to you all, regardless of the month or time of year, time does move by quick. And the most important thing, though, is that even though we may not always get to control um, time itself, we just have to make the most of it and be able to uh, not only fit in what we can, but to be able to make the most of the hobbies and interests that we have and be able to share it with everyone else whom, it, whom say, is either passionate about it like you are as an individual or whom is eager simply to learn more about what history itself has to offer. So, nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air with you guys as we will be discussing another episode of Michael Schumacher's Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell, and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. You know, the last time I was on the air with you guys, um, we uh, got into the heart of uh, the Daniel J. Morrell's final moments. In other words, her final moments um, being afloat on the water. And of course, the water wasn't smooth. It was rough. A very, very violent storm in terms of uh, brutal weather conditions, unseasonably cold temperatures, uh, given that uh, the weather was rather warm for the middle part of uh, the month of November in 1966 in Michigan. But, you know, no matter what kind of extremes take place, nothing is ever certain. And we, we once again, uh, once again, we have to be reminded of the uh, curveballs that Mother Nature throws at us that, uh, well, yes, we don't like, but yet at the same time, we don't have control over it. And I, and I must say that um, Dennis Hale, being the uh, senior veteran of the uh, survivors that are left on this, on this uh, raft, uh, given that he's uh, one of four, given that he is the senior veteran, Yes, it is definitely fair to say that the other three men are, are looking to him for uh, wisdom and advice, but yet at the same time, we learned that they all had to learn how to work together, which they did, but at the same time, I don't think any of them ever thought it, it would come down to a life-threatening situation like this, although they probably already knew on one hand that the unexpected could happen. But sometimes it's always easy to assume that, well, when the unexpected does happen, it just happens to other people and not to us. Well, as much as we'd like to think that nothing can happen to us, unexpected things happen to just about anyone. Uh, nobody's immune from it. The bigger question is, is how are we going to um, be able to deal with the unexpected, even in the most dire of circumstances? especially knowing that we learned at the very end of um, the previous podcast segment ep segment episode about how um, all four men are on this uh, life raft and they're wondering to themselves, what are the chances of getting found alive, given that they lay stranded along one of the largest freshwater bodies of water in the world? And not only just stranded on a on one of the largest freshwater bodies of water in the world in Lake Huron, there's also a lack of solid focus. 
but when you consider all the um, weather elements thrown at them, it would be hard to stay focused. But yet at the same time, for someone like Dennis Hale, he has to be he has to be the one that can not only um, keep order intact, but also be able to help uh, calm the other three in in a terrible time of distress. So I'm sure some of you are, not just some of you, but perhaps all of you are beginning to wonder, what are the chances that all four of these men could be rescued? Of course, I know the title says, Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. So I know for many of you, you're probably thinking already, well, the conclusion is that perhaps, you know, one man alone survived. But at the same time, we should be reminded of the fact that there are those whom do get rescued from incidents like this, and they may survive the initial rescue, but sadly, there have been many instances where um, sailors or uh, crewmen aboard a ship perhaps uh, died a day or two after being rescued due to... Um, due to the intense exposure of hypothermia. Just an example, but, you know, it, it does happen. So uh, so going forward in this uh, segment, podcast segment episode to uh, Michael Schumacher's Torn in Two, we're going to learn about how um, the impacts of this storm were felt by other vessels along the waters of uh, Lake Huron in late November of 1966. We will also learn about... Um, how the U.S. Coast Guard came to the rescue of another vessel that was not too terribly far from where um, the SS Daniel J. Morrell was last spotted. And then we will also learn about um, how um, Dennis Hale himself relates to the other three men. You know, it's it's one thing to work with, uh, with others from a, a colleague standpoint, but in a time of crisis, you have to wonder to yourself, okay, what do I have in common with these other three men besides working on a ship? In other words, is it possible that any of the other three men may have had the same upbringing that I did? Is it possible that that uh, one or two other men out of the four of us on this raft could have had a could have had a um, much better upbringing than I did. So there's a lot of uh, other, um, not only unknowns, but um, questions that Dennis Hale needs to, um, needs to uh, figure out. And not just from his own standpoint, but how everybody, but in other words, what might be the overall chances that all four of them will be found alive and not just found alive, but will be able to uh, tell uh, the story of their um, of their epic struggle for survival on Lake Huron. So I think it's fair to say that we better get the show on the road while we still have enough time um, to our advantage. So here we go with our first leadoff question. Did any other vessels experience similar uphill struggles like what the SS Daniel J. Morrell and SS Edward Y. Townsend each faced in the midst of the current storm attacking Lake Huron? Well, the answer is yes. 
For starters, uh, Captain Zerny Newman of the Kinsman Independent, which happened to be a 592-foot freighter uh, vessel known for transporting, uh, most notably, coal. In this particular uh, instance, she was transporting a load of coal. For Captain uh, Newman, he came close to losing his vessel along the eastern section of Lower Michigan around uh, the Point of Barks uh, Lighthouse, uh, which is located um, around the Thumb area of uh, Michigan per the Lower um, Mainland. So, yes, for Captain uh, Newman, he came close to losing his vessel. How so? Well, he wasn't being reckless, folks. Of course, some might say, well, captains are already reckless as it is for going out into these uh, treacherous waters in the month of November, knowing that nothing is ever certain. Well, Captain Newman was trying to seek shelter in Harbor Bay. So in other words, it's probably fair to say that he started out earlier in the day when everything was just fine. But now all of a sudden, everything has changed. Or perhaps the conditions were already changing as he was leaving from, the, from his origin point, but they had not changed drastically enough at that time to where um, a red flag warning would have come up instantly to say, well, I better turn the ship around and get back into port. So, yes, uh, for Captain Newman, he's trying to seek shelter in Harbor Bay, but at the same time, his vessel, being uh, Kinsman Independent, is enduring ferocious winds from the north at 65 miles per hour. So, if you're dealing with winds, folks, at 65 miles per hour, that is definitely exceeding the maximum threshold for issuing a gale um for issuing a gale warning you know the gale warning needs to be in order for uh, the winds to reach the um the minimum they would have to be at 39 miles an hour and the maximum 54 but anything over 54 is definitely um exceeding the um maximum threshold for um gale force winds so yes Captain Newman's vessel is in, has endured ferocious winds from the north at 65 miles per hour, along with getting trapped in a hollow, or what's known as a trough, between two waves. I mean, it'd be awkward enough to be um, dealing with one bad wave, but now to get uh, trapped in a hollow, or I should say in a trough, between two waves? Oh, to me, that's 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 frightening, because now you don't know... You don't know what could happen in seconds to where your whole ship could come apart. So, for the Kinsman Independent, though, there is good news to report. She did prevail. Did you hear that, folks? She managed to prevail and maneuvered her way downward to Port Huron. Well, to me, I think that's good news, considering that you know, whenever we hear about shipwrecks in the month of November, the news isn't always good. But I think it's fair to say that um, that the news stations welcome whatever good news they can get their hands on. While, yes, the good news does comfort uh, many uh, loved ones whose relatives are on the waters, whom have managed to survive, like in this case with... Um, 
with uh, the Kinsman Independent, we do have to keep in mind that not everyone is so fortunate. Not all loved ones will receive good news about their loved one surviving the storm and coming home alive. Alive, I should say. Secondly, uh, Captain L.D. Jones of the, How- of the SS Howard L. Shaw, a, four- a 451-foot freighter, passed Lake Huron light ship at 3.45 p.m. on November 28th. But just like Kinsman Independent, the SS Howard L. Shaw was right in the heart of the storm where she ran opposite uh, the middle of Harbor Beach. And what I mean, folks, by op- running opposite the middle... It has to do with not being on a line at the right angle to a ship's length. Captain Jones, folks, made two attempts to advance forward, but failed each time. Well, Captain Jones made the right decision after the second time, and he went about retreating to Port Huron. The storm itself did impact vessels that didn't go out onto Lake Huron, including other upper Great Lakes in uh, Michigan and Superior. All right, well, um, here's a a very good example of how how, um, a particular vessel that did not um, go out into one of the Great Lakes, but yet she got stranded. How about the city of Midland, 41, a 407-foot car ferry? She got stranded on a sandbar as early as November 27th. The boat consisted of 128 passengers, 47 cars, multiple railroad freight cars, and a crew of 56. The route went from uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, Ludington is just uh, south of Traverse City. The city of uh, Midland 41 encountered the storm system, which produced 80-mile-per-hour winds to blizzard snow, reducing visibility. Heavy winds led to the vessel running aground onto the sandbar, but luckily the Midland was well-supplied with food and beverages. And get this, folks. She was supplied with two weeks of fuel for heat and electricity. Now, this is a ship, folks, whose crew really know how to uh, prepare for the unexpected. I'm not saying that any other ship that has gone out on Great Lakes waters in late November of 1966 hasn't done their job, but sometimes some vessels, depending on how big they are, and it doesn't always have to be the big guys, But for um, the city of Midland being a 407-foot car ferry, they played their cards well in order to be uh, in order to have enough fuel that would last for um, two weeks, not just fuel, but for heat and electricity purposes, and uh, with enough food and beverages, if not for the full two weeks, at least for a week. Although the Midland would go about enduring a beating from the waves, the harbor's barrier, or what's referred to as a breakwater, helped protect the vessel from the heaviest of waves in the midst of the weather not letting up. You know, not every vessel is fortunate enough 
to uh, receive protection from from a harbor barrier, I should say a breakwater. Many times uh, ships are left at their own mercy or, or at the hands of Mother Nature's mercy to where, um, to where nasty weather can come at all different angles and uh, the chances of uh, survival not only are slim, but um, but just knowing, but just knowing that there's not any um, proper means of uh, defense coverage, yeah, it, you are technically going at your own risk. So thank heavens the Midland um, was able to uh, reduce its chances for not enduring a severe beating by having a uh, breakwater nearby that ultimately protected the vessel from the heaviest of the waves in the midst of the weather uh, not letting up. By November 29th, which is the same day or evening that the Daniel J. Morrell ultimately sank, the Midland Ranch was running short on essentials. What kind of essentials, folks? How about uh, food and beverages, meat, bread, milk, eggs, Luckily, the Coast Guard stepped in and supplied these essential provisions to the Midland by rope. Can you imagine transporting stuff by rope? Well, you know, you have to be creative, and creativity had paid off here. November 30th, the John Purvez, 143-foot tug from Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, sailed from Lake Michigan to assist in removing the city of Midland from the sandbar. Captain Henry Gates of the city of Midland ordered water from the ballast tanks, which are the compartments in the hold of a ship that um, either require being filled with water or emptying out of um, water. In this case, the ship was to be emptied um, the ship's uh, ballast tanks were to be emptied out. This enabled the John Purvis to free the Midland altogether. Another sign of hope, folks. People's lives are saved, and um, we can honestly say that this is good logistical uh, teamwork in terms of radioing in for help and help arriving at the right time, right place, and knowing that there is uh, no loss of life to report. But as I've said before, I'd say it again, not everyone is so fortunate, but at the same time, I think we do have to constantly be reminded of the fact that when people do survive, we need to um, count our blessings for that because, you know, not everybody does survive. Uh, did any other vessels run aground? And what I mean by running aground, that is striking bottom. So did any other vessels run aground, a.k.a. striking bottom, not far from where the SS Daniel J. Morrell's last known location stood? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, the Nordmere, a 470-foot German freighter, which transported coiled steel, struck bottom on November 19th along Thunder Bay Shoal, resulting in the vessel's bow enduring a long cut. I can't imagine um, striking bottom, but many ships um, experience this. And, you know, even with all the sophisticated technology, not just with lighthouses so much, but even with the Fresnel lenses, automated lights, 
you know, no matter how sophisticated the lighthouse technology is in terms of guiding ships in and out of uh, the harbor, there are still elements from under underground that um, that sometimes um, get overlooked or um, miscalculated, underestimated, and you know ships still do run aground. It it happens. It you know. So in other words, no matter how sophisticated the technology is, no matter how much we do to improve technology, there's always still a chance that human error is going to take place. Uh, November 20th the, was the day, the day after the Nordmere had run aground. Uh, the vessel's crew went about removing cargo from the ship. That was a smart thing to do because more often than not when vessels run aground, Cargo is more often than not destroyed to where it's no longer salvageable, and instead of uh, reaping in profits, you're um, you're losing profits, and you're basically digging a hole that uh, puts you deeper and deeper into the red. So, yes, uh, the day after the Nordmere had run aground, uh, her, the vessel's crew went about removing cargo from the ship. All crewmen, with the exception of Captain Ernst George Steinbeck and seven other crewmen stayed behind. On November 29th at 3.03 a.m., one hour after the Daniel J. Morrell had sunk, Captain Steinbeck dispatched out an SOS message, Save Our Ship, or as some would say, Save Our Souls, advising the Nordmere had been taking on water through her hatches, including the same for the fore and aft cabins, that got filled with water only to lose all communications. Gosh, you know, it's one thing to try to send out an SOS um, message. In this case, uh, Captain uh, Steinbeck was able to do that, but within a matter of minutes after sending out the message, he lost all communication because of all the water that not only was going through the hatches, but the water... um, all the uh, you know the cabins the fore and the aft cabins taking on water and it's not just the rooms taking on water but all this water does impact um, the electricity of a ship in other words if water you know if water gets uh, gets into a room it's obviously going to impact the electricity to the point where it's going to pretty much shut down the whole electrical system So there's another. That's just something else that um, that we don't have that we're not able to control. And and yes, we have to accept the fact that there are things that we can't control. But in, a, in an emergency like this one, there's there's probably very few things you can control. So now that um, Captain Steinbeck is not able to communicate, now you have to wonder how in the world can he. What other ways can he go about communicating? I mean, he doesn't have a cell phone. So, it, it, even in 1966, folks, you are at you are you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, is it fair to say that people can still be stuck between a rock and a hard place today, even with uh, technology as sophisticated as it is? Absolutely. The best example I can give you is that when I, when my wife and I do go to West Virginia for um, her alma mater's homecoming, there are um, 
when we get into West Virginia, not long after going over the Virginia-West Virginia uh, border, we have to turn our cell phones off. And we usually have to have them off for at least an hour and a half because there's no cell service. And, I, and I'm not, um, in no way, folks, am I picking on uh, West Virginia. I'm not. But, what I, but the point to this is that there are um, places anywhere, for example, in the United States, where you can go from one spot to have cell service, but all of a sudden you could be driving for an hour to an hour and a half without any cell service. So it just goes to show you that just because we have, just because our technology may be far more sophisticated than it was 60 years ago, it doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't automatically mean that no matter where we travel, say in the United States, for example, we're always going to assume that we get cell service no matter where we go. No, that is not true. So it's just important to be reminded of the fact that, you know, yes, you can be on the highway and you can have cell service, but once you go to uh, another uh, area, per se, the state that you're traveling in, or you've crossed over the state border, um, you may ha you may be going close to two hours without any cell service. So, and it's not just that, but okay, what if your car breaks down? How are you going? You know, what if you don't have OnStar in your car? And remember, folks. Um, no ship would have had such a thing as OnStar in 1966, or let alone a GPS system that could um, that could advise right away of an emergency. So, so yes, to think it, there was a time when, um, you know, to think there was a time, even folks, I have to be reminded that there was a time when 911 wasn't even around. Yes, telephone. The first telephone may have been invented in 1876 by Alexander Graham Bell. But um, we do have to be reminded of the fact that uh, 911 folks did not uh, come about until the 1960s. And my father even told me, too, that um, I think he had told me that if, if someone had gotten hurt in their home and needed an ambulance, the ambulance was not um, at the hospital, I believe. Uh, the ambulance would have been at, at, at a funeral home. I think that's what it was, uh, but it was just uh, one of those reminders about how um, different things were at one time compared to what they are today. So I can't imagine being uh, Captain Steinbeck and all of a sudden you've lost communication. So now you have to wonder, how am I, who's going to help us? Are we going to survive? How soon will someone get to us? So many questions, folks, in a short amount of time, where time is the essence, and if we're not careful, um, we could be looking at a matter of life and death, say, under an hour at most. So in other words, we don't have five to six hours to think, oh, well, we're still going to be here within that time. We may not. So we've got to do everything there is to modify what's in front of us. Given there wasn't any radio contact with Coast Guard, those men whom stayed aboard the Nordmere saw their vessel slip lower into the water while Captain Steinbeck went about firing flares into the air. Okay, folks. So Captain Steinbeck was able to modify the situation. What did he have? He had flares. 
okay, so this is the closest thing that he can get that would be the equivalent to physically radioing in another ship or the Coast Guard. So by firing the flares into the air, he is hoping that a, that a vessel nearby will see that a, a ship out on the horizon is in distress. The Acacia, which was a Coast Guard cutter vessel, was sent to assist the Nordmere, but she too also experienced her own shares of, tru of trouble. How so? Well, from the get-go, like any other ship, she too was dealing with intense seas and winds, which delayed, or I should say hindered, any true means of progress. The Acacia, which was a 180-foot cutter, and I know some of you are thinking, what is a cutter vessel? It is a um, what's called a fast coastal patrol boat. It's not a big size boat, but it's a smaller size boat that can get from point A to point B at a much uh, quicker speed. So the Acacia, being a 180-foot cutter, she was dealing with waves that were breaking over her deck, including waves that threw the vessel around as if it were floating on or washed up by the sea. You know, even the smaller size vessels, folks, are not immune from these rogue waves. Before getting dispatched to Nordmere's assistance, the Acacia was en route to Sault Ste. Marie, delivering two small Coast Guard craft, a 40 and a 36-foot um, boat, on her deck. Or I should say, on her deck, the 36-foot boat broke free in the midst of the bad weather. But believe it or not, folks, the boat remained held down by the Acacia's boom. And what is a boom? Uh, how about a spar, or what's referred to as a pole, that served as an attachment point for um, better enhanced control lines? I can't imagine, you know, being on the Nordmere, or, or not on the Nordmere, but the Acacia, pardon me. Here you are trying to deliver two small Coast Guard craft boats. You successfully delivered the 40-foot one, but now all of a sudden the 36-foot boat broke free in the midst of bad weather. It's probably not the first time that something like this has happened, but yet it's a miracle that the uh, boat was the boat was able to remain held down by Acacia's boom. Given how intense the winds probably were, it, it's, it, it comes as a real surprise to me that the winds just didn't um, take that uh, boat off of the um, spar, or what's called the pole, but it's also fair to say that had uh, Acacia's boom uh, not been as strong as it was, then the 36-foot boat would have completely broken off. The Acacia's electrician being that of Mr. Uh, Dennis Miller, of course not the famous comedian Dennis Miller, but uh, Dennis Miller, the Acacia's electrician, recalled the wind shifting from the north to his own struggles with maintaining proper balance while walking. He saw the cyclometer, which is an instrument for measuring circular arcs, indicate the boat rolling at 30 degrees including a Pepsi vending machine coming apart and sliding along the floor. 
gosh, folks, even, you know, we often think what's on the outside that bears the brunt, but no, the inside of a vessel bears just as much of a brunt. And no matter how well secured your vending machines are, even they too can come apart by the uh, ferocity of the waves. And not just the waves, but the ferocity of the winds and any other element that Mother Nature is throwing at you. The Coast Guard became all the more limited. Even the Coast Guard, folks, is impacted by this. The Coast Guard, uh, the local Coast Guard station has become the all, all the more limited as the storm itself showed no signs of relenting. Cutter Mackinac was nearby, but the supersized waves alone kept Mackinac from getting close to the Nordmere. Well, if these vessels are struggling, folks, did the Coast Guard try using a helicopter? Yes. The helicopters, folks, did not fare any better under gale force winds. As heavy snow fell and visibility reduced, it just seems like Mother Nature just doesn't want to let up. And we've got eight crewmen out there on the uh, Nordmere whom are fighting for their lives. And we should be reminded, folks, that there have been many of instances where the Coast Guard has simply not been able to, even under the most, um, what do you call it, even under the most trying of circumstances, there have been times where a Coast, the Coast Guard has not been able to dispatch uh, a crew out right away to, um, to track down um, a missing ship, including any survivors that would be on site. And the reason for that is because of the elements of Mother Nature. You know, yes, there is a duty, there's an obligation to send um, emergency crews out, but do you want to risk putting your own emergency crews' lives at stake, knowing that if the weather conditions outside are so bad, what, what do you think the chances would be that they might come home alive or come back to the uh, base alive, I should say? Not strong. So it's not just one group of people that are impacted. It's obviously everybody. So the morning of November 19th, wind speed, folks, declined. Wind speed, folks, declined. To me, this is breaking news. If the wind speed is declined, if you are with the Coast Guard, should you take action now? Yes. Because if you don't, you may not get another chance. Time is, even though you might be getting a break in the weather, time is still not on your side. But the bottom line is, you must act now before it's too late. So with wind speed declining... The Coast Guard now decided to move forward with another helicopter rescue mission. I wonder if they'll be able to prevail. I would hope so, but let's find out. The Coast Guard Air Station in Detroit sent out a helicopter to assist in the Nordmere rescue. This would be a 150-mile flight from the Coast Guard Air Station to the Nordmere's location spot, coordinated under weather conditions so adverse, folks, 
so adverse, meaning so bad, that crewmen themselves had never been accustomed to prior to this one. So no matter how experienced your crewmen are, you're going to have some in your group that have never dealt with this before. On the other hand, you will have some that have, if they've not dealt with this with, with something like this one before, they've obviously dealt with enough other situations that bear um, partial resemblance. So if, if you've never dealt with something like this before, then obviously, number one, you need to stay calm. Number two, you probably could ask one of your crewmen, hey, have you dealt with something like this before that, if not 100% similar, but perhaps 50%? And how, and if you've dealt with uh, severe adverse conditions, how did you manage to survive? How did you manage to keep your uh, cool together? You know, it's those kinds of questions you, that uh, that we have to ask. Because remember, being a part of the Coast Guard, uh, like any organization or club, whether it's through work or um, a hobby, anything. You're part of a team. You're part of a network. And you have to know how to work with one another when the going gets tough. And not only when the going gets tough, but even in the most uh, pleasant of times. Because it's not always about banding together when the going gets tough. So yes, weather conditions have become so adverse that, um, that many crewmen themselves had never been accustomed to beforehand. A fellow by the name of J.W. Swanson, whom was uh, the commandant of the um, Coast Guard station in Detroit, many years later recalled, or I should say remembered, the aircraft itself flying only around 300 feet above terrain in snow showers with limited visibility down to only one half mile. So can you imagine um, flying this aircraft around 300 feet above the terrain? Yes, it may be snow showers, but that doesn't mean you can't take the snow showers lightly. And it's awkward enough that you have limited visibility to where it's down to one half mile. But this is where you really have to know your. This is where you have to have your A game, not only on, but your A game has to go more than one step um, further to what you've been accustomed to uh, having to do before. So the remaining 80 miles of the journey saw the helicopter fly inconsistent, fly in consistent snow and icy conditions just 200 feet over Lake Huron. That's pretty close, though, folks, to the water. But at the same time, if you fly much, much higher than 200 feet over Lake Huron, chances are the visibility could even be worse to where you might not see anything. And who's to say that you may not spot um, the Nordmere? You, if you go a little bit higher up in the sky... You might just fly right over, the, over the uh, ship that's uh, in a what's called save our ship uh, situation. 
it took folks here's some good news to report well for starters it took two hours and 34 minutes the total time under adverse weather conditions but in the end the results were for the better the helicopter that flew uh, just 200 feet over Lake Huron in consistent snowy and icy conditions spotted the Nordmere. Okay, it's one thing to have spotted the Nordmere, but can we save the remaining crewmen aboard the ship? The storm out of nowhere had suddenly let up, resulting in the Coast Guard helicopter coming inward to rescue the remaining crewmen on board Nordmere's deck, only to add them onto um, onto uh, the Coast Guard um, cutter, uh, the Mackinac. Folks, to me, this is um, this is another great example of some um, excellent news. Yes, it might be excellent news for families of one ship, but I don't know if we can say the same about another ship or two. We have to remember that, yes, there are those who can be joyous, whom ought to be joyous, but not everybody is able to be joyous. Most notably when the uh, skies of November turn gloomy and knowing that the month of November is is never certain. So um, each rescued uh, crewman, folks, got lifted by a bucket one at a time so, you know, normally when I think of Coast Guard rescues, I think of um, crewmen um, jumping out of the helicopter with special equipment and then getting and landing into the water and being able to um, go about performing the necessary rescue operations. Well, in this case, folks, given the uh, dire circumstances of the weather, the Coast Guard had to reinvent um, how rescues had to be done, especially in this um, trying time of uncertainty. So um, each crewman got lifted by bucket one at a time. Rescuers spent up to 22 minutes, folks, saving the lives of the eight German sailors after the last sailor was rescued. The Nordmere's deck, folks, got flooded with water. And just minutes afterwards, Folks, Nordmere split apart and sank deep into the water. To me, folks, this really is an act of God. I'll elaborate on some more here shortly, but I, I can't—I just cannot imagine being a part of the uh, rescue crew team that saved these um, eight German sailors. And of course, the captain was one of the eight. But it all paid off folks um teamwork just being at the right place at the right time and think about this folks had um had there not been a break in the weather when there was this rescue never would have been able to have taken place but i also have to wonder too you know okay let's say there was a break in the weather we sometimes have to wonder okay when a break in the weather does happen can leadership fail? Yes, it can. There can be leaders who could say, well, 
we have enough time on our side that we'll just wait in a couple of hours uh, to go out there and do what's necessary to save those whom are in need of being saved. Sadly, if you you know waited another hour or two and decided that, that it was time to go, all of a sudden um, the weather could turn turn again for the worse to where you may not even be able to spot the uh, miss, to spot the ship and her crew that are stranded, and you could go from making a rescue now to not making any rescue and knowing that eight men lost their lives. So time is of the essence and making the most of your time, even in a matter of life and death in terms of, um, of modifying a um, rescue mission operation makes all the difference in the world. Where exactly is uh, Shipwreck Alley in Lake Huron? It's in um, Thunder Bay, located north of Escoda, but adjacent to Alpena. Shipwreck Alley is often referred to, um, well, I should say a Thunder Bay is a stretch of water that's known for yielding uh, thick fog banks, uncertain weather, rocky shoals, powerful gales. Thunder Bay, folks, has claimed over 200 vessels. You know, I think it's fair to say that no matter how how um, how well experienced you are as a veteran um, captain of a vessel, that doesn't automatically mean that you are 100% safe from anything unforeseeable when going through uh, Thunder Bay. So it's always wise to use caution no matter what um, elements Mother Nature uh, throws at you. So in other words, yes, you could be a cautious captain. Yes, you could be a um, you could be one of those captains that um, a heavy weather captain. But no matter what um, no matter what label you get, you still have to respect what's around you. Because if not, not only are you endangering your own self, but that of your crew, the cargo, you're also putting um, your crew's loved ones lives at stake in other words in other words my recklessness could not only result in the loss of uh, crewmen on the ship but also um, losses for loved ones whom whom will never see um, losses for family members whom would never uh, be able to see their loved ones again so a fellow by the name of Jack um, Ritacheer whom was the uh, Coast Guard helicopter co-pilot, he was awarded the Coast Guard's Air Medal for personal actions in the rescue mission of the Nordmere. He revealed the following about the storm in quotation, folks. This is what he had to say in quotes. The storm broke as we moved in. All of a sudden, things cleared up. As soon as the last man was picked up, it began to snow again. Well, this is how I interpreted it. Weather changing for successful rescue mission was an act of God. The Coast Guard, Coast Guard airmen stationed at the right place and time to move forward, even in the midst of visibility reduced to one half mile. Weather is never certain, but unexpected breaks for the better 
within a short span must get seized upon before it's too late. This was a game-changer situation, folks, where life and death lied at stake for a short um, matter of time. All right, now we're going to uh, talk uh, about um, Dennis Hale. Uh, we're going to get back to talking about Dennis Hale, and including the other three uh, men, uh, being that of uh, John Cleary and um, Charles Falsbender and Art Stocek. Just how frightened was John Cleary, given his chances for survival weren't good? Well, I think it'd be fair to say that even uh, for someone like Dennis Hale, who's a veteran, even I would be very worried. And even if I was a rookie, like Charles Fossbender, Art Stocek, and John Cleary, I would also be very um, worried as well. Even if, even no matter how hard I could try to put on a uh, brave face and uh, show my toughness, but I would be worried. So yes, uh, John Cleary was very... Um, frightened, knowing that his chances for survival weren't good. Uh, for one, he was extremely wet and cold. Well, I mean, that's what hypothermia does for you folks, and what water temperature at 34 degrees and below. But worse, at age 20, folks, you know, John Cleary, I mean, he's just 20 years old, folks. I mean, just two years earlier, he, he became an adult, folks. Cleary showed signs of early hypothermia, which led to his becoming drowsy along with slurred speech. So when you are showing signs of early hypothermia, folks, it's not just your body that's uh, shutting down internally, but the means, but but your means to properly talk, your means of um, of being alert, go down as well. 20-year-old John Cleary was the second youngest crewman on board the Morel, and he just so happened to be the one whom Dennis Hale related to significantly. Dennis Hale is 26 years old at this time, but both Hale and Cleary had faced issues in their youths regarding difficult relationships with their fathers. I think that's sad. You know... Too often, too often of times, folks, I think we have this assumption that dysfunction has only been a problem um, within the last 25 to 30 years. But we have to keep in mind, folks, that dysfunction has been around since the beginning of time. It's just gotten worse with time, not to sound negative, but it is true. But I think it's also fair to say that... Um, how do I say it? Um, I think it's fair to say that even from generations past, like in the 1950s and the 1960s, dysfunction did exist. However, it is also fair to say that it, perhaps it wasn't for the rest of the world to know about. But then again, we didn't have such a thing as social media back then. We didn't have cell phones where we could just text left and right and and uh, and tell our friends or neighbors about what was going on in the Joneses' home. Like, for example, did, did the Smiths or the Thompsons, do they really need to know what's going on in the Joneses' home? No. But is it, um, un, is it unfortunate to hear that Dennis Hale and uh, John Cleary 
had uh, each faced issues in their youths regarding difficult relationships with their fathers? It is. No young um, fella should have to um, experience that, but yet it did happen back then for these uh, men. So, um, just like Dennis Hale, John Cleary himself saw work on the boats as a way for avoiding unnecessary arguing with his old man, a.k.a. dad. In other words, John Cleary and Dennis Hale probably felt safer once they reached age 18 to make a career out on the boats than they were to, say, uh, remain at home. Sometimes you hear of stories where um, people feel, young people feel safer at school than they do at home. I don't know why I say that, but I've heard of stories. You know, we would always like to think that we're safe at home, but but one thing I've learned is that you don't always have to go to a bad part of town to hear of stories where um, children don't feel safe at home. Um, sadly, um, in suburbia, we hear the same thing too. And I'm not trying to get political, folks, but it is something that we just have to be reminded of is that, um, number one, dysfunction is present. Uh, secondly, it's not going away. But third, we have to be reminded that um, that even in years past, dysfunction took place, or I should say occurred in places that where we didn't uh, expect it to take place. But at the same time, if it did happen, which it did, it wasn't always for the rest of the world to know about. Charles Fossbender and Art Stocek, on the other hand, came had um were the exact opposite of um, Dennis Hale and John Cleary. Charles Fossbender and Art Stocek had more stabilized lives, but yet they too became very worried about how their spouses would survive should they should they uh perish along the raft. Cecilia Stocek, the mother of um of four kids, uh that is uh, Art Stocek's wife her parents were living with them. Art supported all of them. He was let go of from a job in New York State two months before, being in uh, September of 66. So the job he took on the lakes was seen as a last hope, a last hope for um, providing steady income, not just for himself, but for his wife, children, and in-laws. People are making sacrifices, folks, but no matter how hard the sacrifices are, we still have to wonder, what are the chances of survival? Of course, the wives don't know any of this at this moment. Eventually, they're going to find out, but the bottom line is that there's no, there's no such thing as a breaking news alert. Yes, this incident is um, the sinking of the morale is it's it's devastating it's it's sad but it has not reached uh national news at the as of this moment so but we have to still cling on to hope that uh that there will be though that there will be survivors i'm still clinging on to hope that maybe one more than one man will survive but even for those whom do survive we still have to ask ourselves this question. Just because someone survives or, say, four men survive, 
how how is it going to make other families feel whose loved ones didn't survive well that covers um that covers um this uh episode to uh michael schumacher's torn in two uh the the sinking of the daniel j morell and one man's survival on the open sea when i'm on the air again next time with you guys we're going to talk about uh, what's called gauntlets of hope and despair Thank you for your time as always. Thank you for being such ardent listeners. And no matter where you live in the world, continue to stay safe.